Chapter Eight, Part One of the Condition of the Working Class in England in eighteen forty four. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in eighteen forty four by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Eight, Labor Movements, Part One. It must be admitted, even if I had not proved it so often in detail that the english workers cannot feel happy in this condition that theirs is not a state in which a man or a whole class of men can think feel and live as human beings the workers must therefore strive to escape from this brutalizing condition to secure for themselves a better more human position and this they cannot do without attacking the interest of the bourgeoisie which consists in exploiting them but the bourgeoisie defends its interests with all the power placed at its disposal by wealth and the might of the state in proportion as the workingman determines to alter the present state of things the bourgeoisie becomes his avowed enemy moreover the workingman is made to feel at every moment that the bourgeoisie treats him as a chattel as its property and for this reason if for no other he must come forward as its enemy i have shown in a hundred ways in the foregoing pages and could have shown in a hundred others that in our present society he can save his manhood only in hatred and rebellion against the bourgeoisie and he can protest with most violent passion against the tyranny of the propertied class thanks to his education or rather want of education and to the abundance of hot irish blood that flows in the veins of the english working class the english workingman is no englishman nowadays no calculating money-grabber like his wealthy neighbour he possesses more fully developed feelings his native northern coldness is overborne by the unrestrained development of his passions and their control over him the cultivation of the understanding which so greatly strengthens the selfish tendency of the english bourgeois which has made selfishness his predominant trait and concentrated all his emotional power upon the single point of money-greed is wanting in the working-man whose passions are therefore as strong and mighty as those of the foreigner english nationality is annihilated in the working-man since as we have seen no single field for the exercise of his manhood is left him save his opposition to the whole conditions of his life it is natural that exactly in this opposition he should be most manly noblest most worthy of sympathy we shall see that all the energy all the activity of the working-men is directed to this point and that even their attempts to attain general education all stand in direct connection with this true we shall have single acts of violence and even of brutality to report but it must always be kept in mind that the social war is avowedly raging in england and that whereas it is in the interest of the bourgeoisie to conduct this war hypocritically under the disguise of peace and even of philanthropy the only help for the working-men consists in laying bare the true state of things and destroying this hypocrisy that the most violent attacks of the workers upon the bourgeoisie and its servants are only the open undisguised expression of that which the bourgeoisie perpetrates secretly treacherously against the workers the revolt of the workers began soon after the first industrial development and has passed through several phases the investigation of their importance in the history of the english people 
i must reserve for separate treatment limiting myself meanwhile to such bare facts as serve to characterize the condition of the english proletariat the earliest crudest and least fruitful form of this rebellion was that of crime the workingman lived in poverty and want and saw that others were better off than he it was not clear to his mind why he who did more for society than the rich idler should be the one to suffer under these conditions want conquered his inherited respect for the sacredness of property and he stole we have seen how crime increased with the extension of manufacture how the yearly number of arrests bore a constant relation to the number of bales of cotton annually consumed the workers soon realized that crime did not help matters the criminal could protest against the existing order of society only singly as one individual the whole might of society was brought to bear upon each criminal and crushed him with its immense superiority besides theft was the most primitive form of protest and for this reason if for no other it never became the universal expression of the public opinion of the workingmen however much they might approve of it in silence as a class they first manifested opposition to the bourgeoisie when they resisted the introduction of machinery at the very beginning of the industrial period the first inventors arkwright and others were persecuted in this way and their machines destroyed later there took place a number of revolts against machinery in which the occurrences were almost precisely the same as those of the printer's disturbances in bohemia in eighteen forty four factories were demolished and machinery destroyed this form of opposition also was isolated restricted to certain localities and directed against one feature only of our present social arrangements when the momentary end was attained the whole weight of social power fell upon the unprotected evil-doers and punished them to its heart's content while the machinery was introduced none the less a new form of opposition had to be found at this point help came in the shape of a law enacted by the old unreformed oligarchic tory parliament a law which never could have passed the house of commons later when the reform bill had legally sanctioned the distinction between bourgeoisie and proletariat and made the bourgeoisie the ruling class this was enacted in eighteen twenty four and repealed all laws by which coalitions between workingmen for labour purposes had hitherto been forbidden the workingmen obtained a right previously restricted to the aristocracy and bourgeoisie the right of free association secret coalitions had it is true previously existed but could never achieve great results in glasgow as simmons relates a general strike of weavers had taken place in eighteen twelve which was brought about by a secret association it was repeated in eighteen twenty two and on this occasion vitriol was thrown into the faces of the two workingmen who would not join the association and were therefore regarded by the members as traitors to their class both the assaulted lost the use of their eyes in consequence of the injury so too in eighteen eighteen the association of scottish miners was powerful enough to carry on a general strike these associations required their members to take an oath of fidelity and secrecy had regular lists treasurers bookkeepers and local branches but the secrecy with which everything was conducted crippled their growth 
when on the other hand the working man received in eighteen twenty four the right of free association these combinations were very soon spread all over england and attained great power in all branches of industry trades unions were formed with the outspoken intention of protecting the single working man against the tyranny and neglect of the bourgeoisie their objects were to deal en masse as a power with the employers to regulate the rate of wages according to the profit of the latter to raise it when opportunity offered and to keep it uniform in each trade throughout the country hence they tried to settle with the capitalists a scale of wages to be universally adhered to and ordered out on strike the employees of such individuals as refused to accept the scale they aimed further to keep up the demand for labor by limiting the number of apprentices and so to keep wages high to counteract as far as possible the indirect wages reductions which the manufacturers brought about by means of new tools and machinery and finally to assist unemployed workingmen financially this they do either directly or by means of a card to legitimate the bearer as a quote-unquote society man and with which the workingman wanders from place to place supported by his fellow workers and instructed as to the best opportunity for finding employment this is tramping and the wanderer a tramp to attain these ends a president and secretary are engaged at a salary since it is to be expected that no manufacturer will employ such persons and a committee collects the weekly contributions and watches over their expenditure for the purposes of the association when it proved possible and advantageous the various trades of single districts united in a federation and held delegate conventions at set times the attempt has been made in single cases to unite the workers of one branch over all england in one great union and several times in eighteen thirty for the first time to form one universal trades association for the whole united kingdom with a separate organization for each trade these associations however never held together long and were seldom realized even for the moment since an exceptionally universal excitement is necessary to make such a federation possible and effective the means usually employed by these unions for attaining their ends are the following if one or more employers refuse to pay the wage specified by the union a deputation is sent or a petition forwarded the workingmen you see know how to recognize the absolute power of the lord of the factory in his little state if this proves unavailing the union commands the employees to stop work and all hands go home this strike is either partial when one or several or general when all employers in the trade refuse to regulate wages according to the proposals of the union so far go the lawful means of the union assuming the strike to take effect after the expiration of the legal notice which is not always the case but these lawful means are very weak when there are workers outside the union or when members separate from it for the sake of the momentary advantage offered by the bourgeoisie especially in the case of partial strikes can the manufacturer readily secure recruits from these black sheep who are known as knobsticks and render fruitless the efforts of the united workers knobsticks are usually threatened insulted beaten or otherwise maltreated by the members of the union intimidated in short in every way prosecution follows and as the law-abiding bourgeoisie has the power in its own hands the force of the union is broken almost every time 
by the first unlawful act, the first judicial procedure against its members. The history of these unions is a long series of defeats of the working-men, interrupted by a few isolated victories. All these efforts naturally cannot alter the economic law, according to which wages are determined by the relation between supply and demand in the labour-market. Hence the unions remain powerless against all great forces which influence this relation. In a commercial crisis the union itself must reduce wages or dissolve wholly, and in a time of considerable increase in the demand for labour it cannot fix the rate of wages higher than would be reached spontaneously by the competition of the capitalists among themselves. But in dealing with minor, single influences they are powerful. If the employer had no concentrated, collective opposition to expect, he would in his own interest gradually reduce wages to a lower and lower point. Indeed, the battle of competition which he has to wage against his fellow manufacturers would force him to do so, and wages would soon reach the minimum. But this competition of the manufacturers among themselves is, under average conditions, somewhat restricted by the opposition of the working men. Every manufacturer knows that the consequence of a reduction not justified by conditions to which his competitors also are subjected would be a strike, which would most certainly injure him, because his capital would be idle as long as the strike lasted, and his machinery would be rusting, whereas it is very doubtful whether he could, in such a case, enforce his reduction. Then he has the certainty that if he should succeed, his competitors would follow him, reducing the price of the goods so produced, and thus depriving him of the benefit of his policy. Then, too, the unions often bring about a more rapid increase of wages after a crisis than would otherwise follow. For the manufacturer's interest is to delay raising wages until forced by competition. But now the working men demand an increased wage as soon as the market improves, and they can carry their point by reason of the smaller supply of workers at his command under such circumstances. But for resistance to more considerable forces which influence the labour market, the unions are powerless. In such cases hunger gradually drives the strikers to resume work on any terms, and when once a few have begun, the force of the union is broken, because these few knobsticks, with the reverse supplies of goods in the market, enable the bourgeoisie to overcome the worst effects of the interruption of business. The funds of the union are soon exhausted by the great numbers requiring relief. The credit which the shopkeepers give at high interest is withdrawn after a time, and want compels the workingman to place himself once more under the yoke of the bourgeoisie. But strikes end disastrously for the workers mostly, because the manufacturers in their own interest, which has, be it said, become their interest only through the resistance of the workers, are obliged to avoid all useless reductions, while the workers feel in every reduction imposed by the state of trade a deterioration of their condition, against which they must defend themselves as far as in them lies. It will be asked, quote, why then do the workers strike in such cases, when the uselessness of such measures is so evident? simply because they must protest against every reduction, even if dictated by necessity, because they feel bound to proclaim that they, as human beings, shall not be made to bow to social circumstances, but social conditions ought to yield to them as human beings, because silence on their part 
would be a recognition of these social conditions an admission of the right of the bourgeoisie to exploit the workers in good times and let them starve in bad ones against this the workingmen must rebel so long as they have not lost all human feeling and that they protest in this way and no other comes of their being practical english people who express themselves in action and do not like german theorists go to sleep as soon as their protest is properly registered and placed ad acta there to sleep as quietly as the protesters themselves the act of resistance of the english workingmen has its effect in holding the money greed of the bourgeoisie within certain limits and keeping alive the opposition of the workers to the social and political omnipotence of the bourgeoisie while it compels the admission that something more is needed than trades unions and strikes to break the power of the ruling class but what gives these unions and the strikes arising from them their real importance is this that they are the first attempt of the workers to abolish competition they imply the recognition of the fact that the supremacy of the bourgeoisie is based wholly upon the competition of the workers among themselves that is upon their want of cohesion and precisely because the unions direct themselves against the vital nerve of the present social order however one-sidedly in however narrow a way are they so dangerous to this social order the workingmen cannot attack the bourgeoisie and with it the whole existing order of society at any sorer point than this if the competition of the workers among themselves is destroyed if all determined not to be further exploited by the bourgeoisie the rule of property is at an end wages depend upon the relation of demand to supply upon the accidental state of the labour market simply because the workers have hitherto been content to be treated as chattels to be bought and sold the moment the workers resolve to be bought and sold no longer when in the determination of the value of labour they take the part of men possessed of a will as well as of working power at that moment the whole political economy of to-day is at an end the laws determining the rate of wages would indeed come into force again in the long run if the working-men did not go beyond this step of abolishing competition among themselves but they must go beyond that unless they are prepared to recede again and to allow competition among themselves to reappear thus once advanced so far necessity compels them to go farther to abolish not only one kind of competition but competition itself altogether and that they will do the workers are coming to perceive more clearly with every day how competition affects them they see far more clearly than the bourgeois that competition of the capitalists among themselves presses upon the workers too by bringing on commercial crises and that this kind of competition too must be abolished they will soon learn how they have to go about it that these unions contribute greatly to nourish the bitter hatred of the workers against the property-holding class need hardly be said from them proceed therefore with or without the connivance of the leading members in times of unusual excitement individual actions which can be explained only by hatred wrought to the pitch of despair by a wild passion overwhelming all restraints of this sort are the attacks with vitriol mentioned in the foregoing pages and a series of others of which i shall cite several in eighteen thirty one during a violent labour movement young ashton a manufacturer in hyde near manchester 
was shot one evening when crossing a field, and no trace of the assassin discovered. There is no doubt that this was a deed of vengeance of the workingmen. Incendiarisms and attempted explosions are very common. On Friday, September 29, 1843, an attempt was made to blow up the saw-works of Padgen, in Howard Street, Sheffield. A closed iron tube filled with powder was the means employed, and the damage was considerable. On the following day, a similar attempt was made in Ibbotson's knife and file-works at Shales Moor, near Sheffield. Mr. Ibbotson had made himself obnoxious by an act of participation in bourgeois movements, by low wages, the exclusive employment of knobsticks, and the exploitation of the poor law for his own benefit. He had reported, during the crisis of 1842, such operatives as refused to accept reduced wages as persons who could find work but would not take it, and were therefore not deserving of relief, so compelling the acceptance of a reduction. Considerable damage was inflicted by the explosion, and all the workingmen who came to view it regretted only, quote, that the whole concern was not blown up into the air, end quote. On Friday, October 6, 1844, an attempt to set fire to the factory of Ainsworth and Crompton at Bolton did no damage. It was the third or fourth attempt in the same factory within a very short time. In the meeting of the Town Council of Sheffield on Wednesday, January 10, 1844, the Commissioner of Police exhibited a cast-iron machine made for the express purpose of producing an explosion and found filled with four pounds of powder, and a fuse which had been lighted but had not taken effect, in the works of Mr. Kitchen, Earl Street, Sheffield. On Sunday, January 20, 1844, an explosion caused by a package of powder took place in the sawmill of Bentley and White, at Bury in Lancashire, and produced considerable damage. On Thursday, February 1, 1844, the Soho wheelworks in Sheffield were set on fire and burnt up. Here are six such cases in four months, all of which have their sole origin in the embitterment of the workingmen against the employers. What sort of a social state it must be in which such things are possible, I need hardly say. These facts are proof enough that in England, even in good business years, such as 1843, the social war is avowed and openly carried on, and still the English bourgeoisie does not stop to reflect. But the case which speaks most loudly is that of the Glasgow thugs, which came up before the Assizes from the 3rd to the 11th of January, 1838. It appears from the proceedings that the Cotton Spinners Union, which existed here from the year 1816, possessed rare organization and power, the members were bound by an oath to adhere to the decision of the majority, and had during every turnout a secret committee which was unknown to the mass of the members, and controlled the funds of the union absolutely. This committee fixed a price upon the heads of knobsticks and obnoxious manufacturers, and upon incendiarisms in mills. A mill was thus set on fire in which female knobsticks were employed in spinning in the place of men. A Mrs. Macpherson, mother of one of these girls, was murdered, and both murderers sent to America at the expense of the association. As early as 1820, a knobstick named Macquarie was shot at and wounded, for which deed the doer received twenty pounds from the Union, but was discovered and transported for life. 
Finally, in 1837, in May, disturbances occurred in consequence of a turnout in the Oatbank and Mile End factories, in which perhaps a dozen knobsticks were maltreated. In July of the same year, the disturbances still continued, and a certain Smith, a knobstick, was so maltreated that he died. The committee was now arrested, an investigation begun, and the leading members found guilty of participation in conspiracies, maltreatment of knobsticks, and incendiarism in the mill of James and Francis Wood, and they were transported for seven years. What do our good Germans say to this story? The property-holding class, and especially the manufacturing portion of it which comes into direct contact with the working men, declaims with the greatest violence against these unions, and is constantly trying to prove their uselessness to the working men upon grounds which are economically perfectly correct, but for that very reason partially mistaken, and for the working men's understanding totally without effect. The very zeal of the bourgeoisie shows that it is not disinterested in the matter, and apart from the indirect loss involved in a turnout, the state of the case is such that whatever goes into the pockets of the manufacturers comes of necessity out of those of the worker. So that even if the working men did not know that the unions hold the emulation of their masters in the reduction of wages, at least in a measure in check, they would still stand by the unions, simply to the injury of their enemies, the manufacturers. In war the injury of one party is the benefit of the other, and since the working men are on a war footing towards their employers, they do merely what the great potentates do when they get into a quarrel. Beyond all other bourgeois is our friend Dr. Ur, the most furious enemy of the unions. He foams with indignation at the quote-unquote secret tribunals of the cotton spinners, the most powerful section of the workers, tribunals which boast their ability to paralyze every disobedient manufacturer, quote, and so bring ruin on the man who had given them profitable employment for many a year, end quote. He speaks of a time, quote, when the inventive head and the sustaining heart of trade were held in bondage by the unruly lower members, end quote. A pity that the English workingmen will not let themselves be pacified so easily with thy fable as the Roman plebs, thou modern Menenius Agrippa. Finally, he relates the following. At one time, the coarse mule spinners had misused their power beyond all endurance. High wages, instead of awakening thankfulness towards the manufacturers and leading to intellectual improvement, in harmless study of sciences useful to the bourgeoisie, of course, in many cases produced pride and supplied funds for supporting rebellious spirits in strikes, with which a number of manufacturers were visited one after the other in a purely arbitrary manner. During an unhappy disturbance of this sort in Hyde, Dukenfield, and the surrounding neighbourhood, the manufacturers of the district, anxious lest they should be driven from the market by the French, Belgians, and Americans, addressed themselves to the machine-works of Sharp, Roberts, and Company, and requested Mr. Sharp to turn his inventive mind to the construction of an automatic mule in order, quote, to emancipate the trade from galling slavery and impending ruin. Quote, he produced in the course of a few months a machine apparently instinct with the thought, feeling and tact of the experienced workman, which even in its infancy displayed a new principle of regulation, ready in its mature state to fulfil the functions of a finished spinner. Thus the iron man, as the operatives fitly call it, 
sprung out of the hands of our modern Prometheus at the bidding of Minerva, a creation destined to restore order among the industrious classes, and to confirm to Great Britain the empire of art. The news of this Herculean prodigy spread dismay through the Union, and even long before it left its cradle, so to speak, it strangled the hydra of misrule." Ur proves further that the invention of the machine with which four and five colours are printed at once was a result of the disturbances among the calico printers, that the refractoriness of the yarn-dressers in the power-loom weaving mills gave rise to a new and perfected machine for warp-dressing, and mentions several other such cases. A few pages earlier this same Ur gives himself a great deal of trouble to prove in detail that machinery is beneficial to the workers. But Ur is not the only one. In the factory report, Mr. Ashworth, the manufacturer, and many another, lose no opportunity to express their wrath against the unions. These wise bourgeois, like certain governments, trace every movement which they do not understand to the influence of ill-intentioned agitators, demagogues, traitors, spouting idiots, and ill-balanced youth. They declare that the paid agents of the unions are interested in the agitation because they live upon it, as though the necessity for this payment were not forced upon them by the bourgeois, who will give such men no employment. The incredible frequency of these strikes proves best of all to what extent the social war has broken out all over England. No week passes, scarcely a day indeed, in which there is not a strike in some direction, now against a reduction, then against a refusal to raise the rate of wages, again by reason of the employment of knobsticks or the continuance of abuses, sometimes against new machinery, or for a hundred other reasons. These strikes, at first skirmishes, sometimes result in weighty struggles. They decide nothing, it is true, but they are the strongest proof that the decisive battle between bourgeoisie and proletariat is approaching. They are the military school of the workingmen in which they prepare themselves for the great struggle which cannot be avoided. They are the pronunciamentos of single branches of industry that these too have joined the labor movement. And when one examines a year's file of the Northern Star, the only sheet which reports all the movements of the proletariat, one finds that all the proletarians of the towns and of country manufacture have united in associations, and have protested from time to time, by means of a general strike, against the supremacy of the bourgeoisie. And as schools of war, the unions are unexcelled. In them is developed the peculiar courage of the English. It is said on the continent that the English, and especially the working men, are cowardly, that they cannot carry out a revolution because, unlike the French, they do not riot at intervals, because they apparently accept the bourgeois regime so quietly. This is a complete mistake. The English working-men are second to none in courage. They are quite as restless as the French, but they fight differently. The French, who are by nature political, struggle against social evils with political weapons. The English, for whom politics exist only as a matter of interest, solely in the interest of bourgeois society, fight not against the government, but directly against the bourgeoisie, and for the time this can be done only in a peaceful manner. Stagnation in business, and the want consequent upon it, engendered the revolt at Lyon in 1834 in favour of the Republic. In 1842, at Manchester, a similar cause gave rise to a universal turnout for the charter and higher wages. 
that courage is required for a turnout often indeed much loftier courage much bolder firmer determination than for an insurrection is self-evident it is in truth no trifle for a working man who knows want from experience to face it with wife and children to endure hunger and wretchedness for months together and stand firm and unshaken through it all what is death what the galleys which await the french revolutionists in comparison with gradual starvation with the daily sight of a starving family with the certainty of future revenge on the part of the bourgeoisie all of which the english workingman chooses in preference to subjection under the yoke of the property-holding class we shall meet later an example of this obstinate unconquerable courage of men who surrender to force only when all resistance would be aimless and unmeaning and precisely in this quiet perseverance in this lasting determination which undergoes a hundred tests every day the english workingman develops that side of his character which commands most respect people who endure so much to bend one single bourgeois will be able to break the power of the whole bourgeoisie but apart from that the english workingman has proved his courage often enough that the turnout of eighteen forty two had no further results came from the fact that the men were in part forced into it by the bourgeoisie in part neither clear nor united as to its object but aside from this they have shown their courage often enough when the matter in question was a specific social one not to mention the welsh insurrection of eighteen thirty nine a complete battle was waged in manchester in may eighteen forty three during my residence there Pauling and Henfrey, a brick firm, had increased the size of the bricks without raising wages, and sold the bricks, of course, at a higher price. The workers, to whom higher wages were refused, struck work, and the brickmakers' union declared war upon the firm. The firm, meanwhile, succeeded with great difficulty in securing hands from the neighborhood and among the knobsticks, against whom in the beginning intimidation was used, the proprietors set twelve men to guard the yard, all ex-soldiers and policemen armed with guns when intimidation proved unavailing the brickyard which lay scarcely a hundred paces from an infantry barracks was stormed at ten o'clock one night by a crowd of brickmakers who advanced in military order the first ranks armed with guns they forced their way in fired upon the watchmen as soon as they saw them stamped out the wet bricks spread out to dry tore down the piled-up rows of those already dry demolished everything which came in their way, pressed into a building where they destroyed the furniture and maltreated the wife of the overlooker who was living there. The watchmen, meanwhile, had placed themselves behind a hedge, whence they could fire safely and without interruption. The assailants stood before a burning brick kiln, which threw a bright light upon them, so that every ball of their enemies struck home, while every one of their own shots missed its mark nevertheless the firing lasted half an hour until the ammunition was exhausted and the object of the visit the demolition of all the destructible objects in the yard was attained then the military approached and the brickmakers withdrew to eccles three miles from manchester a short time before reaching eccles they held roll-call and each man was called according to his number in the section when they separated only to fall the more certainly into the hands of the police who were approaching from all sides the number of the wounded must have been very considerable but those only could be counted who were arrested one of these had received three bullets in the thigh the calf and the shoulder 
and had travelled in spite of them more than four miles on foot. These people have proved that they, too, possess revolutionary courage, and do not shun a rain of bullets. And when an unarmed multitude, without a precise aim common to them all, are held in check in a shut-off market-place, whose outlets are guarded by a couple of policemen and dragoons, as happened in 1842, this by no means proves a want of courage. On the contrary, the multitude would have stirred quite as little if the servants of public, that is, of the bourgeois order, had not been present. Where the working people have a specific end in view, they show courage enough, as, for instance, in the attack upon Burley's Mill, which had later to be protected by artillery. End of chapter 8, part 1